In this episode, we hear from Chad Oakley, Caroline Wilson, and Ashley Wagner from Charles Aris, one of the world's leading organizations for talent placement. Chad, the CEO, shares about his journey through consulting, starting at Deloitte, then to Bain, ultimately to become the leader of his family business today. In addition, Ashley and Caroline share a little bit about what it's like to recruit in today's virtual environment, where talent is looked at online and brought in through onboarding also virtually. We're super excited to have y'all with us today to hear a little bit about recruiting in the time of COVID, the journey, especially for you, Chad, from Bain to where you are now, and just in general, a lot of really good stuff. So if you want to just give us a little bit of background on you, uh, and we'll dive into the nuances of what decisions that you made and what happened in between each place, but just give us a, a sense of who you are, where you came from, and what you're up to today. Yeah, absolutely. be my pleasure. So uh, it's great to have a chance to connect with everybody, and thanks for having me as a guest. And there's two team members from Charles Zeres, Caroline Wilson and Ashley Wagner, that are two superstars that you'll have a chance to hear from as well with regards to all things recruiting. Um, so I started my career um, at undergrad at North Carolina State University. So I saw that someone's from Raleigh, Go Wolfpack, uh, is my personal background. And then from there, actually, I took in today's day and age, we would call it a gap year. Uh, back then, I just didn't want to necessarily enter the workforce that fast. My parents said, go do something adventuresome before you do that. So I moved to Vail, Colorado. I worked two jobs. I skied for a year. Uh, paid, you just made enough barely to pay the rent and get a ski pass. After a year, I, I came back home and moved to Philadelphia, where I joined Deloitte Consulting uh, in their Philadelphia practice. I did a lot of uh, enterprise application solution stuff. Uh, the buzzword back there was re-engineering. That's a word that today is often referred to as transformation work. So a lot of process optimization and things along those lines. Uh, I was then very fortunate to attend the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania for my MBA. And then coming out of uh, Wharton, I made, again, probably my second hardest decision in my career, and that was to forego the sponsorship that Deloitte had provided for me to join Bain & Company in their Boston office. Uh, so tough decision for me, uh, but it was a good decision for me at that particular time in my life. Both firms are awesome, uh, but Bain provided me with an opportunity that I did not have at, at uh, Deloitte. So I moved to Boston, joined Bain, and worked at Bain for three years, and then had a very important conversation with my father about joining the family business, which was Charles Zeris. Uh, that was 17 years ago. That was the hardest decision I've ever made in my career, uh, but moved here. And uh, since I've been here, um, our firm has done, we've been very fortunate to do very well. I've uh, personally, I'm at, I'm at 396 completed searches uh, since coming um, uh, back home. And so it's been a great experience for me thus far. And that's what I continue to do. And that's what I expect that I'll be doing for the next 20 years of my career. Amazing. I don't know how many of us could say that, but I'm excited to dive into a little bit more about it. Well, we have some questions that I know are top of mind for a lot of folks right now. And I'd love to start with a little bit about your time at Bain to preface the questions about recruiting. The first one is just, you talked a little bit about your time at Bain, and you can feel free to add in stuff from Deloitte too. Um, but the toolkit that you gained at Bain slash Deloitte, if appropriate, how have, do they help you navigate your current role? That is a great question. Um, there are, oh my gosh, there are count, truly kind of countless things that you learn in consulting that will be helpful for you, regardless of what it is that you choose to do in your life. I don't care what you go on to do. I don't care if it's manufacturing or financial services or professional services, right? I've stayed in professional services, although a different arm, but the skills that you learn there are invaluable. 
And there's a couple that do come to mind that I think are really, really prevalent for me. So maybe the first one would, be, would just be that my time at Bain and at Deloitte helped to set a standard of professionalism and excellence for me. Um, you know, part of my job as the CEO of an executive search firm is to help set our standard of excellence and to make sure that we're living up to those standards as an organization. And one thing that you learn in consulting is you really do strive for perfection. Uh, there's no way that you're ever going to be perfect at everything that you do, but you get a sense for, you know, striving for per perfection will allow you to kind of reach excellence. And uh, the consulting firms are excellent at what they do. And you learn what excellence looks like, like true excellence and professionalism looks like. And that was very valuable for me uh, and has been throughout my career. Um, you know, the second thing that, I, that comes to mind is in consulting, you learn what it means to deliver real value, right? Um, you know, in that business, word of mouth is paramount uh, for your ongoing and long-term success. And there's only one way that anyone's ever going to refer you to another client or to ever hire you again, right? When you're in professional services, repeat clients are the lifeblood of your success. And so you've got to deliver real value, right? Something that your client says, my goodness, I never could have accomplished this without your assistance. Um, thank you for helping us to get from A to B. And so um, understanding what it means to deliver real value has been a wonderful lesson for me as well. Um, the consulting firms do a wonderful job of teaching you how to communicate. Uh, and so how to uh, take a concept, tell us, wrap a story around it, and to bring people with you. Um, influence others to kind of, you know, be inspired by uh, that story as well has been an invaluable skill that I learned in consulting. And then maybe I'll say this just because I've got two, two of our superstars on the call with me, but I really do think that consulting teaches you and has taught me how to identify and hire superstars and then how to provide superstars with the tools that they need to thrive, right? And then to really just kind of get out of their way right? Um, if you can create the right environment for them, they will, they will bring you along, right? And I think uh, Caroline and Ashley are good examples of individuals that we've been fortunate to bring on the team. And they actually kind of bring me with them as they go to do, to do great things. And consulting has been very helpful for me on, on that front as well. So those are maybe four things that I'll mention that it, taught, it certainly taught me. Amazing. Can I ask, going back to point number one about the pursuit of excellence, I was just on a training where we talked about being 80-20. How do you feel like being 80-20 and the pursuit of excellence work together? Yeah, so 80-20 was a tough concept for me. In fact, for most new consultants, I think 80-20 is usually a pretty tough concept to grasp. If, if you are a STEM undergrad or just someone who's naturally analytical, you'll probably struggle with 80-20 uh, more so than others, right? So just as a reminder, 80-20 is a concept that says, hey, we should be able to get to 80% of the answer with just 20% of the analysis. You just have to choose the right 20% that's going to get you there, you know, so to speak. And, and other people might say that you can do, also you can do 80% of the work, right, and only get 20% of the value. So you got to think about it from that perspective. But, you know, when you get hired as a consultant, um, it's because it's a complex problem and we don't have any time. But there's no time to solve it, right? That's why you're there. You're there to, to deliver world-class results in a very short period of time. And so as much as you would like to truly look at that problem from every single angle, uh, download every last bit of data to get to your answer, that is unfortunately never going to happen. The time simply won't allow for that. So you've got to choose your analysis incredibly wisely, uh, which is why uh, the, the concept and the principle of the hypothesis-driven approach, right, which is a concept that all three of the firms uh, Bain, BCG, and McKinsey leverage uh, in different ways. Bain calls it answer first, but the firms all basically refer to it as the hypothesis-driven approach. 
your hypothesis has to be really sharp, and then you have to distill uh, uh, down to its essence exactly the analysis that needs to be done to get you to 80% of the answer with only 20% of the work. So, um, and you, I mean, look, at the end of the day, you've got to be excellent on that. Your, your standards have to be incredibly high uh, to make sure that you can convince a CEO of a major corporation to make a significant decision uh, without, you know, looking at that problem from every last angle and only being able to do it from 20%. So um, it's a good challenge to have, Jenny Ray. I'm sure in just a minute, we're going to hear a little bit more about what you're doing now to get those same CEOs to have that conversation in a different light. But if we can take you back a few years in time, rewind the clock to your first year in consulting, some of the folks that are on the call today are earlier in their career. Some people are mid or late career. Uh, but for those that are earlier in the career, what was your biggest lesson from your first year in consulting? Uh, and if you could highlight first year at Deloitte and then contrast that with first year at Bain, um, it, then on top of that, if there's something that you would recommend for people to prepare going into their next job, that would be amazing. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So both my experience at my first year at Deloitte and my first year at Bain were, while they were very different, my experience in each was very similar. Um, the learning curve was incredibly steep uh, and it was Probably it was, without question, the most humbling, uh, you know, experience in my life. Um, I will tell you that um, I was I was a moron in my first six months at Bain. Okay, <laughs> at least I certainly felt that way. Um, that's I, that's know, comforting to hear. Yeah, I mean, and I was coming out of a you know a top tier MBA program, and and I'd certainly had great experience, you know, at, at Deloitte and had done well there. But my first six months at Bain, I was I was walking around feeling quite blind. Um, I'll never forget, there was, um, there was a pre-MBA who was on my first team. Uh, she had uh, been at Bain for three years. She was in her third year. And I was in my first six months. And even though I was five or six years older than her, and I had been to this great MBA program, and she had not yet uh, achieved her MBA, she knew 10 times more than I did on what we should do uh, you know, for client work. And I learned very quickly that if I was humble enough uh, to just uh, be a sponge and to learn everything that I possibly could and to truly ask for advice from people like her, I was going to be okay. And then actually what, what ultimately happens is the roles reversed. Actually, when I got past six months and I kind of figured out how we actually did things around, around Bain and how we were adding excellence and how we were adding value as a firm to our clients, then all the education that I had at Deloitte, all of the experiences that I had at my MBA really kicked in. And actually, it was a little bit of a role reversal. I actually became more of the leader. But for my first six months, junior people led me. And uh, I think one of the reasons why I was successful is I, I was humble enough to allow that, uh, that to happen. I think if you, had, if you had, could rewind the clock and go back to my, if my first six months review, I think if you had talked to the partner on my project, he probably would have said, they would have said, well, how's Chad doing? I think he would have said, well, he doesn't know a thing, but boy, he has the best of intention and he's just working his tail off and he's going to get there. I'm seeing him on a curve. He's going to get there. He's going to be fine. Uh, but boy, the, you know, he, it's clear he, he needs some, you know, more repetition. That sounds like some people that I would advise from case interviews. That's the exact recommendation that I would give them. We know yeah. that they'll get there, but they need a lot more repetition to actually have an idea of what they're talking about. That's right. That's exactly right. Completely agree. Completely agree. Well, then you rose to become a CTL at Bain. And this is my last question about Bain. So how did you know that you were ready to leave? 
Yeah. Um, as I mentioned before, my, the second hardest decision in my career was to choose to go to Bain over Deloitte, but the hardest decision in my career was, to, was leaving consulting to do executive search. I loved Bain. I had a world-class experience there. I was fortunate. I had a world-class experience at Bain. I love the people. Um, Bain has been a wonderful client and partner of ours, even you know, uh, to this day for our search firm. So I'm a huge fan of that. And I have told many people that if I didn't have a family business opportunity, I'd like to think that I'd still be there at the, at the firm. Um, my father called one day and said, you know, I've been thinking, um, wouldn't it be fun if, and um, I ultimately, as I was thinking about it, reversing myself back 17 years ago, I thought, golly, if I don't do this in 30 years from now, if I stay at Bain and have this world-class career, I still have this terrible, I'll have this sinking feeling in my gut that said, you were one of those few very lucky people that had the chance to go work in a family business and you didn't, regardless of your success, is that something you're going to regret? And so um, I wasn't necessarily ready to leave Bain, but I was ready to go and join a family business and to work with my father. Um, I was just absolutely paranoid of three things in making that decision. Number one, maybe I'm not going to be good at recruiting. Like maybe I'm not the chip off the old block, right? That I needed to be uh, like my father or number two, maybe I wasn't going to enjoy it. Or number three, what if we just fought like cats and dogs the entire time? And I'm very fortunate that um, uh, I, I'm pretty good. There's a lot of things I can't do in my life. I'm pretty good at this. I really do love it. And uh, we are fortunate to get along fabulously. He's still the chairman of our firm and he, he works hard every single day, even at 75 years old. And I've been fortunate to have a chance to work with him on that front. Now, in just a second, we're going to get to hear from two people that work with y'all about what it's like to work for you and, and work for a family oh. business. <laughs> but, but before we do that, I did realize there was one part of the one question earlier that I wanted to go back to because I think it's important. Uh, you mentioned being a moron, not knowing what you were doing and then working to get there. And I know some people do have time now. Some start dates are being pushed back until this fall or next year even. Yeah, some people's internships have been moved to offers and so they have a year to prepare. And so what would you, in retrospect, have spent that time doing to prepare for the role? Yeah, boy, that, what, what a great question. Um, you know, the, uh, there are some things that I would recommend. Like, think, here's what I do is I think about your own skill set and where you've excelled and where you necessarily haven't. And for those areas where you haven't excelled, I dust off some of those textbooks. Like, you know, for instance, look, I went to the Wharton School and we're known as this finance school and all that kind of stuff, but I wasn't necessarily a finance guy. I mean, I was, I majored in entrepreneurship. That's what, where my passion was. And when, you know, there were a couple of times in my early time at Bain when we're doing, you know, discounted cash flow analysis. And, uh, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, yeah, I know DCF from a conceptual standpoint. And yes, I had to do it in one of my classes and I got through it, but when you're, when you're actually converting that into real valuation exercises for your clients, it's different than in a classroom setting. And so I, if, if DCF was something that, yeah, you understand the concepts, just know that when you get into consulting, for sure, you're going to do valuation analysis and companies are going to make real decisions based on your analysis. So make sure the, you know, the analytical stuff that you're doing is you're pretty buttoned up on would be one thing that I would recommend. The second thing that I would recommend is, you know, the case studies that you can do when you're like, I'm sure for any of you who have jobs in consulting firms, and that's where you're headed. Um, you did case studies, right? And you probably practiced a lot of case studies when you were in school in preparation for the interviews that you were going to do with the consulting firms. 
those case studies are wonderful exercises on truly how the consulting firms think. So I'd encourage you to download cases and practice them. Like go through that, that thinking, uh, if you will. The other thing that I'll just mention, the last one I'll mention is um, do research on uh, a hypothesis-driven approach. Do research on answer first and what that means at the different firms. Uh, Hypothesis-driven approach should be the buzzwords that should get you there. But every single case you work on, you will exercise the hypothesis-driven approach. You might as well go ahead and get ahead of the curve on what is it, what does it look like, um, you know, uh, how does it work, and, and practice it. That would be very helpful as you go into that role. I'm so excited to dive in now to a little bit more of an understanding of your current work because where you are, you have a unique view on recruiting the economy and skills that are important for folks when they're uh, in a position to be working with your organization. And so I would love to know just a little bit more about the business of Charles Aris, if you can explain it. Um, and I'd also love for you to introduce your colleagues that are on the call and let us hear a little bit more about what they do. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. So Charles Aris is an executive search firm in the classic sense of the word. We're celebrating, this will be our 51st year in business. Last year was our golden anniversary, which is a wonderful celebration for us. And uh, for those of you who aren't as familiar with executive search, right, we get hired by companies. 50% uh, of our clients are corporations, and we work with companies of all shapes and sizes from Fortune 10 companies to Fortune 5,000 companies and everything in between. And then 50% of our client base are private equity firms. And we work with everything from the very largest private equity firms in the world that you read about in the Wall Street Journal on a fairly regular basis, all the way down to middle market firms as well. Um, and we get hired by those organizations to go out and find very specific talent for them to fill critical roles uh, within their teams. Um, we are focused by function. And so um, we're probably best known uh, and the people on this call uh, would, will want to get to know us down the road as your careers progress. We're best known for our strategy practice. We do have the largest strategy and corporate development recruiting practice in the United States. And strategy practice is defined as uh, we place individuals who either are currently employed by a strategy or operational consulting firm or previously were employed by one of those such firms and place those individuals into uh, private equity firms, their portfolio companies, or uh, corporations. There's a host of other functional areas in which we have specialists as well, including finance and accounting, engineering and operations, sales and marketing, executive leadership, and human capital are the functional areas in which we specialize. Caroline and Ashley both work in our strategy and corporate development practice. So uh, Caroline Wilson is a vice president at Charles Air. She runs our private equity and asset management practice within within strategy. So for any of you who ever want to leverage your consulting experience into a job in private equity, Caroline truly knows more about that than any other person in the United States. Um, and then Ashley Wagner is a senior practice leader at Charles Zeros and she runs our financial services practice. So for those of you who ever want to go into financial services, whether that be insurance or banking, commercial banking, retail banking, et cetera, from consulting, Ashley Wagner leads that practice and is the number one recruiter for that in the United States as well. So. Uh, that's who are joining me uh, right now. So I'm Ashley Wagner. Um, Chad, great introduction. So I lead our financial services practice specific to strategy and corporate development. Um, my background, I've been at Charles Harris for 
Coming up on six years now, um, I never really thought I'd get into the recruiting space, uh, but it's just constantly challenging. You have to be super intellectually curious, and I love working with people. Um, I kind of consider myself a little bit of a matchmaker for our clients, finding the very best talent for them on uh, behalf of whatever position they're, they're looking to fill. But again, with a focus on strategy and corporate development talent, um, working for an ex-consultant. So... It's interesting because we talk to consultants or former consultants all day long, and sometimes individuals will say, were you a former consultant? And clearly, I'm not. Um, my background pre-Charles Harris is I was in the insurance world, uh, which is one of the reasons I kind of started our financial services practice. But um, we learn a lot of the lingo just from but also from, you know, talking to consultants all day long. So I think the most fun part in placing current and former consultants is the fact that sometimes they think I'm one of them and I'm totally not. Um, and that's kind of fun um, just because we, again, pick up on a lot of the lingo and I think we run our business in a similar way through the professional services lens as the, the consulting firms. Amazing. Thank you for that. All right, Caroline, you're up. Yes. Yeah, so as Chad said, um, I'm a vice president with Charles Aris. I've actually been at the firm for over 12 years now, which is a long time, I think. And really all of that time has been spent recruiting consultants and former strategy consultants. And it's really a population of people I enjoy. Sometimes people make jokes about it, but I actually, I love all the people that we work with. Um, and I, I spend all of my time doing that in the private equity industry, which I think is really fun. Um, so in terms of working for a former consultant, um, I think it's been great. Like Ashley said, just in terms of giving us insight into what it's like and we've learned, the, you know, we learn things and we can um, throw around the lingo and, and that kind of thing. And we also have a lot of fun when it comes to the, the times of our, of our job, which is less often really than a consultant. But when we're putting together PowerPoint presentations and we get to argue over which color green looks better on a slide and that kind of thing, Chad's love for that and that attention to detail and making sure everything is always perfect and client ready um, is something I think we've learned a lot from Chad as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. Well, we'll be excited to hear from all of you. So now I'm going to open up the floor for a recruiting conversation and anyone from your team is welcome to answer. Uh, but we would love to just hear a little bit about how for you COVID has changed what the recruiting landscape looks like at the moment. And maybe uh, more specifically, if it's changed what people are looking for in executives, if, has it changed skills, mentality, attitude, anything related to that that you think is an important nuance to call out? Yeah, maybe I'll start and then Caroline or Ashley, either of you could chime in as well. So uh, Jenny Ray, that's a really good question. Um, you know, our guess is that much like when the Great Recession happened, right? So I don't know how many of you would have lived through the 2008, 2009, 2010 Great Recession, but it wasn't fun. And uh, this is uh, hopefully will not be quite as severe as that. But during that recession, we saw companies dramatically shift their need from one of growth strategy to one of cost containment. In other words, those kind of that transformation buzzword that I used before. Lots of transformation roles were hired uh, during that time. And transformation is really kind of just another way of saying cost containment, right? We're taking costs out of the business, whether that meaning means terminating individuals or shutting down projects or uh, 
dramatically reducing our you know, uh, new capital spend and things along those lines. So we saw a, a pretty strong shift to those types of roles. That is thankfully, knock on wood, that is not a shift that we have seen happen just yet. Now, we suspect that we will see some of that, um, especially in certain industries where um, you know, those industries are tr struggling a little bit more than others. It's the usual suspects that you would guess uh, from the COVID-19 scenario, right? So um, retail, luxury goods, hospitality, um, uh, those, you know, those types of spaces are really struggling right now. But, and so that's where we probably will guess you're gonna see a decent amount of transformation roles uh, start to be uh, uh, pretty popular. However, the rest of the marketplace really hasn't shifted in that direction. There's, they pretty much seem to be holding steady. So um, uh, the short answer is we have not yet seen a significant shift in the demand or the desire for certain types of talent. Uh, January would be my perspective. Caroline and Ashley, you might have seen, you might have a different perspective on this. I think, I mean, my perspective right now is that compared to a lot of other industries, I'm, I'm probably especially fortunate that in the private equity industry, um, my clients have not been as directly impacted in terms of their hiring needs at the moment, just because they have a dedicated pool of capital. And these are critical positions to these firms, whether or not frankly, the economy is going well or not, these positions are really important that they're able to either make the right investment decisions or, or guide their portfolio companies in the appropriate way through the COVID response. So for, for the moment, at least, you know, I've, we've continued to see a strong demand there. Of course, there's plenty of challenges associated with everything that's going on right now, but the demand to hire people has still been strong from my clients. Yep, and I'll just add, um, I had a conversation last week with a partner at a private equity firm who uh, is in the value creation team and hiring for a number of their C-suite roles. And he asked me, hey, how do you go about qualifying a potential CEO candidate for how they manage crises? And I've never been asked that question uh, before. I, of course, don't lead our, our, our C-suite, uh, our executive leadership recruiting practice, so I kind of deferred to the individuals who do. Um, but, you know, that's clearly something that's on, I think, every company's mind right now. Um, another thing, I think we're hearing a lot of consultants doing work around COVID and what the world is going to look like post COVID. So we've actually had a lot of clients come to us and say, you know, it's even more critical that we get this search and this, the right person for this role now, because, you know, we're going to be figuring out what, how we're going to take the business forward post COVID. Um, so I think the, the virus actually has heightened the need to bring in a higher level of talent for a lot of our clients as well. Chad, would you be willing to weigh in on that question? It's a little ethereal at the moment, but, but what does an executive who manages well in crisis look like? And maybe you can even refer back to the work during the Great Recession if you have insights from there. Yeah, so um, that is a great question that is on the mind of every executive and every company on the planet right now. Um, and so I, there's a couple of things that I think we strive to do. One is, um, I think you've got to have a positive attitude. And, and that might sound simple, but I think in a world like this, as the leader of any organization, you've, you've got to demonstrate that this, this isn't easy and we're certainly not you know, saying, oh, it's all gonna be fine, right? There are moments when we have to recognize that this is hard and it's gonna take a while to get through this. But I think you have to have an attitude of, 
we're going to get through this, right? We're going to, we're, this is going to work, right? We're going to get through it. We're going to do it together. And as a team, we're going, to, we're, we're going to survive and then we're going to thrive. And so just having the right attitude, I think, is a huge part of the leader's responsibility. Um, after that, I think the second most important responsibility you have to have is for the safety and security of your team members and just making sure that that is at the top of your list. So let's have a positive attitude, knowing that we're going to get through this. And then secondly, let's make sure that whatever decisions we make, it takes the safety uh, uh, and the health and wellness of, of the employee base uh, uh, as the, the most important decision uh, criteria that you can possibly have. And then I think the third thing that you have responsibility for is being creative about keeping the business going, um, right? Um, the, the last thing any leader wants to do is to, I, I can assure you, the last thing a leader wants to do is to furlough any employee base or worst case, even lay off an employee base. So what does that mean that that, that company has to do to make sure that the wheels continue to turn, even if they're turning a little slower or even if they're turning in a slightly different direction than perhaps they were, they were turning before COVID-19, but making sure that they're still turning uh, is really, really important. I, you know, a responsibility that I feel like I have is we got to make sure that there is enough that we are doing that every single person on our team is busy, maintains a level of busyness. So uh, if, if, if that means we slightly shift our, our service focus, uh, if that means we move away from our retail and consumer packaged goods practice and move more towards financial services or healthcare or private equity or life sciences where we're seeing stronger demand, let's pivot, let's make that shift uh, so, that, so that our wheels continue to turn would be the three big things that I think are really critical for any leader right now. Amazing. So the other question for me is, has your pitch changed when you're asking for people to leave their current roles and move to another role? Is there something different that you're saying, something different that you think is an opportunity for them when they're thinking about making that move? I actually think Ashley and Caroline might be better suited to, to answer this question as they're closer to it. So what would you guys say? You know, I think what we've talked about surrounding this is that we want to make sure that we're being really genuine with people and we're keeping people's best interest at heart at all times. So, you know, as a result, I think the answer to that is going to really depend on a client by client and search by search basis. Um, but as we've gone through our searches and, you know, also talked with our clients about this in terms of, you know, what do you think the messaging should be around why a person should do this right now? Um, you know, again, I think these are really critical roles that our clients hire us for. So they generally have really excellent answers as to why someone should do this. You know, um, you know, for example, one of my clients recently bought a, a company, they're a private equity firm, they invested in a company in an industry that in some ways is very clearly impacted by this. But, you know, this job reports directly to the CEO and this person's whole responsibility is to improve the value of this company. So this is actually one of the most important seats in this business right now. Um, and then we could talk about the business model and how there's a subscription-based revenue and things like that that helps to protect them during these times. But, it, you know, for me, it's been an, a unique story for each client. But, you know, for all of the companies that we've worked with right now, I, I do believe that we have a good value proposition. I, I'm also not working with any startups or hospitality companies right now or anything like that. So maybe that makes it a little bit easier. And in addition, I think on top of every client having a different story, clearly every candidate has a different story. You know, we're big believers just in general of a very consultative approach 
in terms of helping folks to figure out truly what the right next step in their career would be post consulting or post any role that they're in. But especially right now, there's just a heightened sense of there's a heightened, almost like emotional agility that you have to have because you have no clue what any candidate or any client is dealing with in the current environment. And so, you know, we definitely have heard a lot of consultants specifically say, there's absolutely no way I'm considering a transition right now. We've also heard consultants say, you know, I'm spending a lot more time at home with my family and I want that to continue that way. And so I know while, of course, we're not going to be back to, to travel likely anytime soon, you know, an industry role is going to help to get me there um, in the long term. So it's interesting, you know, we definitely take a lot of cues from our candidates in terms of what they're comfortable with, especially in this environment where it's just much more heightened um, in terms of the just health crisis and, you know, folks' emotional state of mind as well. Amazing. So uh, about the spending time at home, let's talk just really briefly about virtual interviewing. So in the world that you're in right now, the interview process also looks different than it did before. So are the companies that you're working with willing to extend offers and onboard people without meeting them in person? And if they're not, how are they navigating that? And if they are, what does that look like at the moment? Yeah, um, so again, a great question, uh, Jenny Ray, and I'll, I'll maybe start and I'll let Caroline and, and Ashley chime in. So the short answer is yes, uh, companies are definitely uh, making what we're referring to as a virtual only offer. In other words, uh, they will have interviewed a candidate only via Zoom um, or via telephone, but Zoom is, and Zoom and Microsoft Teams and other uh, like products are doing a wonderful job of, of uh, allowing people to feel like they can have a face-to-face -face interaction, even if they're, if they're virtual. Uh, but, uh, but they are making offers uh, for virtual only positions. Now, not all companies are, and there are companies that are willing to do it for certain positions, but not for all positions. Um, but I will say this, uh, probably uh, four months, four weeks ago, excuse me, it was probably 50-50. Probably half of our clients said, yes, I will make an offer to someone that I never meet face-to-face. -face. I only interview over Zoom. And half were saying, absolutely not. We can't do that. We're going to have to wait until we can see them face-to-face. Since then, we've definitely had more clients shift from saying no just to saying yes. And I think that's driven by two things. One is they've just gotten more comfortable with this technology, right? This technology's really done a nice job and they've just gotten more comfortable with it. And then secondly, the, the, I think they've seen that, you know what? We may not be able to travel for a longer period of time than perhaps we thought. And therefore, and this position's critical for us. We're probably going to have to make a decision without actually seeing this person face to face. Um, so we're, we're definitely seeing it uh, from that perspective. And at a growing uh, rate, we're seeing it as well. Um, you know, uh, the, the process is exactly what you would imagine. It's really a normal interview, just like you would have at any other time. You're just doing it over a, a video conference. Um, and I will say that um, you do more. Our clients are doing more interviews than perhaps they would before, before they extend an offer. And also references become a lot more important. Um, references are always important before you make a hire, but when you're going to make a virtual hire, um, talking to more people and, and digging a little bit deeper than perhaps you normally would uh, has become uh, an important part of the process as well. Uh, but it's definitely working. Just two weeks ago, we had a, a private equity backed portfolio company hire a CFO sight unseen. 
So they just did virtual interviewing. So even at the most senior levels of an organization, this is a CFO position, clearly very important for the business. The company said, we're ready to extend an offer. And the candidate said, I'm ready to accept, even though they've never seen each other face to face. That's incredible. You know, I would say that my clients, I wouldn't say that anyone's enthusiastic about doing this, of course. Um, So I think that we've got clients across the spectrum of yes, maybe, no. And the ones that started at no are starting to get closer to maybe. And the ones that were at maybe might be getting closer to yes. I think it's a gradual warming up, at least in my experience. Um, the one, you know, the one piece of advice and guidance also that I'm just reminding candidates of right now also is that in order to do a virtual only hire, the level of conviction is going to need to be higher, you know, in terms of how much they like you, they're going to need to really, really be excited about you to do this because it's just not something they've ever done before. So um, I think, you know, obviously in demonstrating the technical skill set that the client is looking for throughout the course of the interview, but also those softer cultural pieces that Chad mentioned, you know, that references can help with, but also just the interaction, you know, that's the part that they're missing through the Zoom interviews is, you know, you're not having the chat while you walk down the hallway to, you know, to the interview room and things like that. But I think just give people a greater sense of comfort or they're not going out for coffee, you know, as, and that kind of thing. And so I've got some clients that struggle with that just because they can spend a fair amount of social hours with a person. So we're trying to find ways to adjust for that. But, you know, again, if there's more of a hesitation, now is not the time where companies are going to want to take a risk on someone that they don't feel great about, in my opinion. That's Um, super insightful. I guess the only thing I'd add is on the candidate side, there are a lot of things that candidates can do to get more comfortable with making a decision on a virtual offer. Because even if the 50%, as Chad mentioned, of our clients are comfortable extending a virtual offer, the candidate still has to get comfortable potentially accepting a virtual offer. So there's, you know, a lot of different aspects. And probably Caroline and I, you know, we deal with this maybe a little bit less because in the private equity world and Uh, with a lot of my clients in financial services that are much larger, uh, they're known entities, right? Um, They're not smaller companies where they're going to be in a manufacturing environment and it's going to be a little bit more up in the air in terms of how modern um, their their buildings are. And so we're a little bit luckier in that sense, working with companies that are in the bigger cities and are in just more office environments. Um, So I think, you know, we've worked with our clients to figure out how can they get a candidate comfortable with, you know, not only what is that commute going to look like or what's that relocation going to look like, but also how can we just show them what your office looks like? So if there is any like proprietary video that you've shot for different reasons, how can you repurpose that and share it with a candidate to get them comfortable when clearly they cannot come tour your facility? Um, So it's, it's both sides, right? Getting both the company comfortable with making this decision and creating a virtual interview process that's going to work for them, uh, but also helping a candidate along through that process, which can be quite challenging as well. Absolutely. Well, I know we have a lot of amazing questions from our community, so I want to jump over to some of those. So my first question is just where are the opportunities? Chad, you began to mention this a little bit, maybe shifting some of the practice focus from one sector to another, but where are you seeing the most active interest in hiring for candidates that either have disrupted opportunities or are thinking about beginning to enter the job market right now? 
current consultants or not, where should they be looking? Where are the opportunities at the moment? Yeah, so uh, the, the opportunities that we're seeing are, are as, as I had mentioned before, is, is pretty much the list where we haven't seen a ton of disruption at all. In fact, in fact, we're actually seeing some growth. And that would be food and beverage, of course. That would be healthcare. Uh, that would be life sciences, which is defined as pharmaceuticals, medical device, and biotech. Um, and that would include financial services, um, Ashley's world, right? You think about banking and insurance, that those worlds must go on regardless of a COVID-19 environment. And then also Caroline's world, which is uh, private equity. And in the private equity world, you know, they're, they're just like a lot of companies, but they're, they're, having, they're taking a longer term view on this, knowing that, you know, just like everything else that ever happens in the world, this too shall pass and uh, we'll be getting, you know, back to normal. When? That's still debatable, but we will be getting back to, to a new normal. And we're gonna need talent in all of those particular areas. So from an industry perspective, those are the spaces where we would strongly encourage uh, people to pursue. Um, if you're, so if you're a retail person, maybe think about you know, staples, right? From a retail perspective, right? Grocery and things like that are booming, uh, right? They, they, they've never seen growth like this. Probably, literally, probably literally, right? Most of those organizations have never seen growth like this. The Amazons of the world and things like that have never seen you know, uh, opportunities of this nature. So uh, if you're going into retail, stick there. Stay away from luxury items at this particular time. Uh, there's just, you know, that demand has, has uh, let off. And who knows before it really picks back up at a level that, uh, that we would like. Um, if that's where we're seeing uh, opportunity. Yep. And I'd mentioned specific to financial services, you know, insurance is booming more than anything else. Um, historically, insurance hasn't been the most sexy part of financial services. And clearly, no, no industry and no company is recession proof by any means. But, you know, insurance is definitely higher up there in terms of a less risky move right now. Um, I think in addition to that, um, you know, Caroline touched on this earlier, but startups, um, there definitely are some startups still out there hiring, but you just want to make sure you have real conviction in the business model and the financial stability. Uh, we definitely are working with a lot of candidates who unfortunately have been laid off um, or, uh, you know, six months ago they joined a startup and unfortunately it's just not the same situation um, it was when they initially joined. So trying to find the right balance of financial stability just from a company size or also from an industry standpoint is important. That's amazing. So a couple of other questions that folks put in. One is, does Charles Aris cover private equity investment associate roles or only placements that are into private equity portfolio companies? I guess that's me. So um, yes, we do cover private equity investment roles um, really across the spectrum, but the private equity investment roles that we do are almost always associate level roles. Those are the pre-MBA roles that are generally the entry point into a private equity firm um, after usually either two or three years of experience in investment banking or strategy consulting. So traditionally, the vast majority of associate hires have come from the investment banking world. Since I've been doing this over the last, you know, 10 plus years, we're seeing more and more firms that are hiring more from a strategy consulting as well. So um, we do a number of searches every year that are focused on recruiting associates into as, um, investment roles as well. 
Well, and one thing that I'll just follow up on that, Caroline, um, that I think could be important to mention is why that is the case. Why at the associate level is, yeah. is that, do we do it? There? But you might want to share that with the broader group. Mm -hmm. I think the primary reason for that would be um, at the post-MBA level, first of all, at least at most of my clients, their goal is to hire great associates to where the senior ranks at the firm are typically filled by people that worked there before business school, likely left, get their MBA and returned. So there is not a lot of net new hiring at the more senior levels. If there is the net new hiring at senior levels for post-MBA investment roles, they are looking for people that have prior investing experience, probably working in private equity at another firm before business school. So there are really very rare opportunities for someone to exit strategy consulting at a more senior level and go into an investment role in private equity. That's incredibly rare. Awesome. And a second question that came in was around uh, doctoral students. So um, if you are seeing somebody who has a background, not as an MBA, but as a PhD or an alternative degree, um, and they're thinking about maybe going into a role like consulting or internal strategy to, to develop some of these skills, what are some specific things that you would recommend that might be unique for somebody who doesn't go through the standard career pathway? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, uh, definitely the firms hire PhD students, right? No question about it. Um, uh, McKinsey and BCG probably hire more PhD students than Bain does, but um, uh, they definitely hire um, uh, PhDs. So that's the, that's the good news. If I think about where uh, it's harder for PhDs to differentiate themselves, right? The vast majority of PhDs have been only in an academic environment to that point where they're now interviewing at the consulting firms. Whereas uh, if you think about MBA students, uh, almost all MBA students these days had a prior, had, an ex had a working experience prior to going back to school to get their MBA. And so that's, that's very valuable in the world. It's not to say at all that the, the academic experience that a PhD would have is not valuable, but it is different. And um, in some cases, and this, this is just something that you're going to have to overcome, there is definitely a fear among the consulting firms and then also among corporations when they're hiring PhDs that are currently working in consulting. Is this person more passionate about an academic career than they are a commercial career? And so you're going to have to demonstrate that you've, you've gained this degree. You're not a career academic. You've gained this degree because of your passion from a commercial perspective. The second concern, just very frankly, that people have is, hmm, if this person has spent more time in academics, what, is, what are their social skills? What are their, um, in, uh, their emotional intelligence skills? Because they haven't had those three or four additional years of business experience in, on average, in heated meetings and having to read the room and the emotions in the room uh, in a way that you would in, ac in academia, right? Um, so certainly you have those moments in academia. We all, we all know that. But there's a belief that uh, you might lack some of those experiences. So your ability to demonstrate your passion for a commercial experience, but then also that you have the emo you've had the emotional challenges uh, in, your, in your life that you can sit in the room around the boardroom table and engage and interface with everyone else at the table, just like an MBA or just like a person who's had business experience prior to would as well. 
Amazing. Here's another question. When y'all are looking to be matchmakers between companies and uh, the more entry-level roles, right? So some people are there right now, but others might be thinking about where to go. Are you looking exclusively at MBB for PE firms or for all the firms that you're looking at? Or are there other strategy consulting firms that are considered to be good candidate pools for the organizations that y'all are working with? Caroline, why don't you take the private equity answer? And Ashley, why don't you take the corporate answer? So candidates from MBB absolutely have a a much higher number of opportunities when it comes to private equity. That's true. Um, You know, private equity firms tend to hire people that have similar backgrounds to their own. And, you know, if you look at who are the leaders in the private equity industry that are former consultants? Many of them worked at Bain or many of them worked at McKinsey and some of them worked at BCG as well. So those candidates do get more opportunities. Um, However, we also absolutely recruit from other firms as well. Um, The firms that I've probably spent the most time recruiting from outside of MBB would be LEK and Parthenon because they also do a lot of due diligence and private equity work. Um, And then depending on our clients, you know, certain searches right now, we've got one where candidates from AT Kearney are really interesting to them. Oliver Wyman. um, Those are probably the ones that I personally interact with the most, but we definitely, you know, get to know candidates outside of the, the big three as well. Yeah. And on the corporate side, um, it just depends. Um, MBB, there definitely is a prestige and a skill set that comes along with the academy academy training that you learn there. But as Caroline mentioned, you know, LEK, Parthenon, Oliver Wyman, AT Kearney, uh, Strategy and former Booze, uh, Monitor Deloitte, uh, those are a number of the other big firms we recruit from. Um, if you're talking about more of a operational role, um, of course, you can look at um, some of the operations firms. So more of the classic Deloitte, SNO, um, KPMG, Accenture, EY. Uh, we do even recruit from some of the boutique firms um, like a Alex Partners or a, um, Alvarez and Marcel if we're talking about heavy transformation roles. Um, And then even some of our clients are looking for candidates within some of these specialized groups within the consulting firms. So if you talk about, like, um, I just kicked off an AI and innovation role uh, with an insurance company. And, you know, we're targeting folks coming from BCG Digital Ventures or Doblin, the innovation arm for Deloitte, or uh, like an Oliver Wyman Labs, for example. So folks who kind of have more of that entrepreneurial mind. So it really just varies. Um, I definitely think there is um, a prestige that comes along with MBB or a number of the other top consulting firms. But um, as Caroline mentioned, I think a lot of like-minded folks likes to be around folks who look like them as well. But sometimes even, you know, I worked with a team last year who was almost all BCG. We don't want another bcg because, you know, we need to diversify outside of this. We want to bring in different, you know, diversity of thought and, and different backgrounds. So Um, It is kind of across the board. Wonderful. Well, just to wrap up, do y'all have a final exhortation for folks that are in the candidate pool, things that you would recommend that they be focusing on right now or focusing on the long term to set themselves up for success? What I would say is um, if you're thinking about consulting, I can pretty much guarantee that if you pursue that route, it will be uh, a great experience. It will be a tough experience. It will be hardworking, 
but the skills you learn in consulting, you will take with you for the rest of your life. And it will definitely help to accelerate your success. I'm a firm believer in that. Uh, and um, uh, if you're uh, con committed to consulting, but you don't yet have the job, practice, practice, practice. Case, practice cases as much as you possibly can. That is the, uh, that is the key. Carolina or Ashley? You know, I think if a lot of the people on this call are kind of in the earlier stages of their career, one of the things that I would just point out is I spent a lot of time interviewing people that have very similar resumes that, you know, they're young in their career, they went to grade schools, they've got two years of experience in consulting, and it's been good experience. So one of the things that sets people apart is also just making sure that they had robust internship experiences prior to coming into consulting. So of course, as you get more senior, no, nobody really cares quite as much about the internships. But I really take a lot away from seeing people that went out of their way to get what I would call robust internships, which could be a lot of different things. But those people that maybe went out of their way and cold called people in an industry that they were interested in to find work opportunities. So like at a time like this, if for some reason an internship is falling through or something like that, um, those people that really really, you know, took the initiative to find those experiences that really give them the leg up also, because they've just got more valuable experience when they start in the consulting firm. That really sets people apart, in my opinion. Yeah. I think the best advice I've heard, and then I try to give folks, is think about your career in five-year chunks. Sometimes people think I have to have these grand plans laid out of what I want to do for the rest of my life and how I want to think about the next 20 or 50 years of my career. And um, I think if you think about where you want to be five years from now and work your way backwards and figure out what is the path that's actually going to get you there and talk to folks who look like you five years from now. Um, if there's someone who was in your same seat five years ago and they're doing something that looks interesting to you, reach out to them and network. Um, you know, for folks who are in consulting, if you're considering the part, uh, talk to partners about why they made the decisions they made. If you're in consulting and you're considering leaving, talk to, to folks about why they left when they did and kind of what the right path was within industry to, to get them to where they want to be longer term. Um, it's so simple to say, just talk to folks who you know, have a similar path uh, that you may want to have, but I think it's often overlooked, and especially right now when you might be on the beach more or just have more time on your hands, um, having those networking conversations and listening for the things that just naturally align um, to your interests and how you might be thinking longer term, I think that a lot of times will help you figure out what you really do or don't want to do, both in terms of a next step, but also longer term. Thank you all for your time, this incredibly engaging conversation and your insights. We're so grateful. Thanks everyone. Thank Have you. a great rest of your day. Bye y'all. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode on Charles Aris and the state of recruitment today. We're excited to share with you great content like this. So please subscribe to our channel. Make sure that you check us out on YouTube. And if you've got questions about recruiting or virtual onboarding, please visit us at managementconsultant.com.